Well, do you not love this weather? Yeah, really, I mean, hey, summer's coming. We ought to take these 80 degrees in this water. Well, like Tree said, we're in a series where we're really taking a look at uh, loss and suffering, okay? And we've termed this series, the title of this series, called The Tunnel of Chaos. Now, I would have you know that in Jesus' ministry, when he came into a town, he did three things. He, he, he taught, he preached, and he healed the sick. He, he evangelized, he, 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 dis, he, made, he grew disciples, and he cared for hurting people. We're in this series, and the aim of this series, in part, is to equip you and I to be Christ in our community. Because we live in a community that is filled with all kinds of hurt, all kinds of loss and suffering. And whatever that loss may be in our community, with that person that you might know, God wants you to be Christ to them. Now the reality is this. You may not be in a tunnel of chaos right now, okay? But my guess is you know that someone, you know of someone who is. God wants you to be Christ to them, and so I want you to take good notes. I want you to take good notes for them, and I want you to take good notes for yourself because the reality is this. Eventually, you will go through a tunnel of chaos. Now, for those of us who are in this tunnel of chaos right now, LifePoint Church wants to walk with you through it. This is why, this is what I believe a church should do. We are a family, and so we walk together through things. If you're not a member of this spiritual family, you are welcome to be a part of it. I can't encourage you enough, maybe show up for our membership class today. No, no need to notify us in advance, just show up. And, and what gets you and I through these times of suffering and loss is what we know. And what we know so far as we are progressing our way through this tunnel is that we know that when we first step into it, when we experience that suffering, that loss, is that our worldview changes. That it does 180 degrees. I've had people tell me, George, when, when that loss hit me, whatever it was, it's like time just froze. It just slowed down. It just didn't seem real. I felt numb. I felt shocked. And what we learned, what we learned in that first message was that we need to do Two things, bare minimum. And the first thing is we need just to cry out to God. And secondly, we need to accept the help of others. Last week, we took a look at the second phase of a tunnel of chaos, where our hearts are breaking. Because what happens as you begin to progress through this tunnel from your frozen state is that you begin to thaw out and your feelings begin to, to kick in. You start crying, you're sad, you grieve, you have sorrow. What gets you through a broken heart is that you must do four things. We talked about this last week. You must list all of your ungrieved losses. Secondly, you must grieve over the real loss. In other words, you've got to go deeper than just the obvious. Then you have to have the courage to lament, and we're going to talk more about that today. And then you must ask Jesus to heal your broken heart. Today, we're going to take a look at the third phase of a tunnel of chaos. And that is when our minds are confused. 
when we are filled with all kinds of questions, why this, why this, or why this, why me, why now, okay? Why isn't God here? Why, why, why isn't God answering my prayers? We're going to take a look at how you and I get through a confused mind. Now the reality is this, that every one of us knows and understands that life is tough. Life is tough because we live in a, a world that is broken by sin. In Genesis 3, 7, God said this about Adam, but it's true of us. Because you sinned all your life, you will struggle. Will you underline that, okay? And you and I will struggle basically in three areas. We will struggle with other people, we will struggle with ourselves, and we will struggle um, with, with God. And we're going to take a look at these struggles in the context of Jacob's life. Because Jacob was a hero, he was a giant in God's eyes, okay? We first struggle with other people. And what I mean by that is that every relationship is broken with sin. And, and so there's competition, there's conflict, there's confusion. Jacob had this in his life. He struggled in all areas, to be honest with you, but he struggled in his relationships with others. He struggled with his brother Esau, his twin brother Esau. He struggled with his two wives, uh, Leah and Rachel. Uh, and by the way, if you need any evidence of why polygamy just doesn't work, you need to read Genesis 30, okay? For myself, I can only handle one. I don't know how he did it with two or whatever, okay? But he struggled in his relationships with his wives. He struggled in his relationship with his father-in-law, Laban, and his 12 sons. In fact, Jacob's whole family was very dysfunctional. They all played their family. Leah had her favorites, Rachel had hers, and Jacob had his. He struggled. I'm tired of this. He struggled in his relationships. Secondly, we struggle with ourselves. In fact, the biggest battle that you have in, in life is not really with other people. The biggest battle that's going on in your life is inside of you. You struggle with your failures. You struggle with your fears, your insecurities, your temptations, your guilt, your resentment. And Jacob had these in spades. Jacob was a very insecure person. And as a result, he manipulated people to get his own way. And with that came guilt and resentment. He, he, he had what I currently call the Apostle Paul complex. Take a look at Romans 7. I don't understand myself at all, for I really want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. But there is a law at work within me that is at war with my mind. I think each and every one of us here can identify with this, can't we? We want to do the right thing, but we end up doing the wrong thing. And the wrong thing that we don't want to do, that's the very thing that we end up doing. And so we struggle. We struggle with others. We struggle with ourselves. But the greatest struggle is our struggle with God. We struggle with God all the time, whether we are conscious of it or not. In fact, I would say this, that the mo the, the, most of your struggles with others and with yourself are rooted in your struggle with God. Now, why is that? Why is it that we struggle with God? For two reasons. One is that we doubt his wisdom. And secondly, we want to be in control. 
folks, whenever you doubt God's wisdom, in essence, you want to be in control. You want to be God. You think you know better than God. And oftentimes we think, well, I think I know what I'll make. I think I know better what will make me happy better than God does. My kids growing up, I would say this, never doubted my love what, what whatsoever. They knew that I loved them, but they often doubted my wisdom. Any of you had teenagers before? I could see it in their eyes as I was talking with them. I, I know they respected me, and I know that they knew that I loved them, but as I was giving them wisdom from God's word, from life, you could see their minds just spinning. Yeah, Dad, that's so old-fashioned. Folks, a lot of us are that way with our Heavenly Father. We know that He loves us, but we doubt His wisdom at times. Why, God? Why did you allow this? Why, why me? Why now? Why, why did you say no to this prayer? Why aren't you answering my prayers? Where in the world are you, God? When you and I do that, in essence, what we're really doing is we're questioning God's wisdom. Jacob struggled with God. Take a look at Hosea chapter 12 and verse 3. As a man, Jacob struggled with God. You see, as a baby, he struggled in the womb. Rachel, his mom. I mean, he was struggling with Esau, his twin brother, okay? But as a man, he struggled with God. In fact, he even had a wrestling match with God. Let's pick up Jacob's story in, G in Genesis 32. Jacob sent his family across the Jabbok River, and he stayed behind alone. That night, a man, and notice that's capitalized, a man came and wrestled with him until daybreak. Let me set up this story for us, okay? Jacob had cheated his twin brother Esau out of his birthright and his blessing. And instead of mom, because they were dysfunctional, hey, Jacob, you need to give it back to him, okay? He, he, he kept it, and that made Esau mad. And, and so Esau wanted to kill him. Rachel, his mom, said, hey, Jacob, this is what we're going to do. You need to go to a different country, okay? And you, you need to go to a country where your uncle Laban is at and get out of this place for a while. And so he does. He ends up with his uncle Laban, and he marries two women, Le Leah and Rachel. After 20 years of being there and creating all kinds of mess while he was there, God tells Jacob to go back. Jacob actually regrets what God has said to him, but obeys. Because in the back of his mind, he's still thinking, hey, Esau's probably still wanting to kill me. Jacob is on his way back, okay, to his homeland when he hears that Esau and 400 men are riding his way. And he begins to think, I don't think this family reunion is going to work out too well, okay? And yet, God, you told me to go. So when he gets to this river, the Yabok River, he sends his family across and he stays behind because that's what every good husband does, right? Send your wife out front. Hey, there's someone in the house. You go out and check. I'll stay back here, okay? He does that because he's thinking, you know what? If Esau's ticked, they're going to kill my family. That way, at least I can escape. And yet God shows up at the Yabok River. He wrestles with God. And he does so because, in essence, God's saying, Jacob, 
No more running for you. You have been running your entire life, and there's no more of this. For one, once and for all, we're going to settle this issue. We're going to have a wrestling match. And this wrestling match happens at the Jabbok River. And he meets this man. And I had you circle that. Man, or man, notice that it was capitalized because this is a unique man. I don't have time to, to talk about and bring out the pre-incarnate Christ, but I believe it was the pre-incarnate Christ, a God-man, Jesus Christ, showing up early in the Old Testament. And the wrestling match occurs. And listen to this as the story continues. And Jacob sent his family across the Jabbok River, but he stayed behind alone. That night, a man came and wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he wasn't winning the struggle, he hit Jacob on the hip, and it was thrown out of joint. The man said, let me go. Daylight is coming. And Jacob said, I won't let you go until you bless me. Now, notice that this man wasn't winning the struggle. And I just want us to pause there and think about this for a minute. Have, has there ever been a time in your life when you are, were in a no-win struggle? You may be in one right now. You see, you may have a certain struggle that you have struggled with all your life. And instead of winning it, you've had to manage it because it doesn't go away. It may be a relational issue. It may be a physical issue. It may be an emotional issue. It may be a mental issue. It may be a vocational issue. Folks, there's just some problems that never go away. We don't win over them. We have to manage them. Now, this man, it says that he wasn't winning the struggle. If, if Jacob was wrestling against God, clearly God could have won that wrestling match, right? I mean, he's all powerful. So what's going on here? I mean, God could have easily overwhelmed him. So why is this wrestling match continuing? It's because God loves it when you wrestle with him. You see, some of you are wrestling with God right now. And what I want to say to you is God loves it when you struggle with him. Why? Because the opposite of struggling with God is walking with him. The opposite of struggle, struggling with God is just walking away from him and just saying, you know what, God, I'm fed up with you. I am tired of this. I mean, why weren't you there? Why did you allow this to happen? I'm done with you, God. You see, God would rather you fight with him than flee from him. Does that make sense? When you and I argue with God, God comes along and says, that's okay. Because when you argue and wrestle with God, it's a face-to-face -face thing. Remember last week I talked about knee-to-knee, face-to-face? That's what's going on here. And I don't know if you've thought about this. It's an intimate sport, but not only that, it is a sport about control. And God says, I like it when we argue about these issues. Because at least I have your attention. And so he's letting this struggle go on, even though he could have ended instantaneously. He's letting Jacob think that he's winning. And Jacob says this, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And the man then says this, what's your name? 
Jacob, he replied. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob. You have struggled with God, with God, and with men, and you have won, so your name will be Israel. What's going on here? I mean, why does God ask him what his name is? Well, understand this. Anytime God asks you a question, it's not for his knowledge. Folks, it's for ours. He wants us to know. And in this case, he wants Jacob to know who he is. He wants Jacob to admit who he is. Jacob's name in the Hebrew is manipulator, supplanter, deceiver. In those days, people were given names that represented their character. And Jacob has has gone his entire life manipulating, deceiving people, trying to get his way, trying to control everything and everybody. His brother, his family, his, his, his uncle, his, his wives, his kids. And so when God asks him his name, in essence, he's saying, Jacob, do you realize your problem? Do you realize the reason that we're in this struggle? It's you. You're the reason. You won't give up. You're still trying to control everything and everybody. And in the process, guess what? You're just making a mess of everything. And Jacob admits it. My name is Jacob. Yes, I am a deceiver. I am a manipulator. I'm a control freak. You see, I really wonder (laughs) if our primary sin was our name, what our names might be. Hey, I just want to introduce myself. I'm low self-esteem. Just want you to know that. What's your name? Oh, Lusty. Oh, interesting, okay. Hey, I'd like to introduce you to my friends. Greedy, worrier, control freak. By the way, here's a, here's a good coworker. Lazy, okay. He's asking Jacob to admit, and Jacob admits. And folks, why Jacob is such a giant in God's eyes, and I like this about Jacob is that he is willing to struggle with God. He doesn't run away from God. He hangs in there because, folks, he knows what he wants. He says, I want God to bless me, and I'm not letting go until you do, God. I want to ask you this question. In your journey of life, as you struggle, no doubt, through many things, this isn't going to be the first. Have you ever said that to God? Have you ever said, in your tunnel of chaos... God, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Jacob is persistent. And he knows what he wants. And he's even willing to admit, you know what, I'm the problem. I'm the deceiver. I'm the control freak. I'm, I'm, I'm the supplanter here. And I know I'm making a mess of all kinds of things. And God says, as a result of this, he says, okay, Jacob, You've struggled with me, and you've won. Will you circle that phrase, you've won? If you read from Genesis all the way through Revelation, there's only one time in the Bible that God has ever told a person, you won. And it's Jacob. Jacob is up there with the giants. You know, when God identified himself to Moses, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, in Genesis, is mentioned 910 times. 
Isaac is only mentioned 80 times. Jacob is mentioned like 708 times. Jacob is a giant in God's eyes. And he says to him, you're blind. There's some lessons that are going on here. He says, you've won. And so as a result, guess what I'm going to do? Your name will no longer be Jacob. It's going to be Israel. What's going on here when he does this? He's giving him a new identity. You see, Israel means two things. It means one who struggles with God and prince of God. And so in essence, God is saying, hey, you got a new identity. Uh, you are a giant in my eyes. You are a prince. You are a, a, a leader because you have struggled with me. Now, why is this so important when you and I are smack dab in the middle of this tunnel of chaos? And by the way, we are. We're halfway through, okay? We're smack dab in the middle of this tunnel of chaos dealing with confusion in our mind. Why is this so important? It's because when God wants to get you through something, what he has to do is he has to first work inside of you. We don't think that way. We think, hey, we got to change all the stuff on the outside. And God says, no, 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 no. The greatest work is what happens on the inside. And the greatest work, the deepest work that God will do to get you through your tunnel of chaos is in your identity. It's seeing who you are. Anytime you want change in your life, it starts with changing your perspective. And until God changes your perspective on how you see yourself, there isn't going to be a whole lot that's going to change in your life. Honestly, if I was to ask you this question, to fill in this blank, it's just like me to be what? How would you fill that in? It's just like me to be lazy. It's just like me to be insecure, to be angry, to be late, to be lustful, to be greedy. You see, if you're going to get through what you're going through, you're going to have to change your identity from Jacob, controlling. I know better to Israel, a giant, a leader, a prince who struggles, yes, with God. Now, as a result of this wrestling match, it says this in Genesis 32, verse 23 here. Then God blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Folks, this is an important story in the Bible. And God put it in the Bible for a reason. And the reason is so that you and I would know how to wrestle with God when our minds are confused. Because, and when our minds are confused, a lot of times we are frustrated. And with frustration comes anger. With frustration and anger, we lose perspective. And so God put it in there question is this, what should my response be when I am going through this tunnel of chaos and I find myself in the middle of this tunnel? Well, to answer that question, you and I first need to understand this, that the only reason that you and I can wrestle with God is because God loves us. You see, God is not an apathetic God when you and I are going through these tunnels. He is a God of love. He is a God who sympathizes. There is a verse in 1 Peter 5, verse 7. You might write this down. I love this verse. It says, cast all your cares on God because he 
cares for you. The word care is mentioned two times. God is a caring God when you and I suffer and lose things in life. If God didn't care, guess what? You wouldn't be wrestling with God. The very fact that you and I can wrestle with God in our minds, why God? Why did this happen? Why did this happen now? Why is this happening to me? You don't seem to be very close to me right now, God. It just doesn't make sense to me, God. Where are you at in all of this? As you know, in these past weeks, we've been taking a look at four individuals or four families that have gone through their own tunnel of chaos. And in these little video stories, you're seeing snippets of the different stages that they were experiencing. Today, you're going to hear the whole story of the convicts with their son. Let's take a look at this. during this time was Psalms 126, 5 and 6. Those who weep as they sow their seed return to the harvest with shouts of joy. You cry as you go to plant the seed, but you sing as you return to the harvest. I never blamed God. I cried out to God, but I wasn't angry at him that it, this would be happening to me. I just called on him for help. The overwhelming emotion that I felt was being alone, the, the loneliness. And I knew God was with me, but I really wasn't convinced of that. And one day I went in my local Kroger's and a young man came running down the aisle and he said, Miss, Miss. He came up to me and handed me this bracelet. He said, I've been waiting to give this to the right person. God wants you to know that you are not alone. And I looked at him and I said, do you know what happened to me? And he said, yes. And tears filled his eyes and he hugged me. And that's when I knew that I was not alone, that God was there with me. I asked God why. And I felt that my relationship with him was so strong that I could ask him why. And I did. Why me, Lord? Um, I have two children, and I do need to be here to take care of them. And I realized that, you know, he, he will be with me. And I thought about the verses in uh, Joshua 1.5, where he talked to Joshua and Moses, and he said, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And he was speaking to me, too. And then also in 1 John 3, 1, he said, you know, my love, I lavish on you. And he was speaking to me. My love, I lavish on you, Betty. I won't leave you. I'll take care of you. We've always taken great pride in being a Christian family. And that's why we were so surprised when our son decided to go down such a destructive road. We were pretty devastated when we discovered our son had gone down the road of drugs and uh, he was pretty combative and defiant and uh, just really hanging out with a lot of the really wrong people. After a long struggle, uh, which lasted over two years, we felt like God was leading us to do something radical. And that's when we decided to send Reed to a boarding school. We finally decided the best thing to do was have an intervention with Reed and use uh, his youth pastor and his small group leader and send him away. 
After a few months of being there, we decided that it wasn't a good fit, so we brought Reed back home. It wasn't long before we were right back where we started from. Started searching for a secondary place to send Reed to, and we came across Teen Challenge Ranch and found it to be a good fit for him. And he was 16 at this time. After we got him there, he was doing quite well and actually became their poster child. It came time to come home for Christmas break, and we all had this false sense of security. Uh, we were just really excited to have Reed home and celebrate Christmas. At the end of the Christmas break, he decided not to go back to Teen Challenge Ranch, and we had no other option but to kick him out of the house. It was the hardest thing we ever had to do, but we knew that it was the right thing, and, and this was what, how God was leading us. Going through this time really was hard on us, definitely as a couple, but we knew if we just held strong that we could make it through. It was seven weeks to the day before Reed came home and said that he was ready to go back to the ranch and begin again. After Reed getting back to the ranch the second time, he immediately surrendered to God and really got to work on his life. After graduating Teen Challenge, Reed decided to continue moving forward with God's calling and went to Youth with a Mission in Kansas City where he spent three months training and then three months on the mission field and now is looking for his next step to move forward with God's plan for him. You see, when, when you hear real, live, authentic stories like that, gives you hope, doesn't it? Gives you hope for the tunnel that you're going through or that you will go through. The question is, how do you do that? Well, last week I introduced a lament. It's a prayer, okay? A prayer of lament, which is a, a, a passionate expression of complaint to God. And this may shock you, but God just doesn't want you to praise him or confess to him. He wants you to lament to him. He wants you to complain to him because a lament to God is an act of worship. Now, a lot of times when we complain, we don't complain to God about what's going on. What we do is we complain about God. That is an act of rebellion. That's not an act of worship when we do that. That's a, that's a sin. But when we complain to God about what life is throwing at us, okay, it's an act of worship. I mentioned last week that there are 150 psalms, and out of those 150 psalms, 65 to 67 of them are prayers of lament. And in those prayers of lament, you see a pattern. You see four, what I call the four C's of a lament. Complaint, a call, citing of God's promises, and communicating trust to God. I complain to God, I, I call on God's nature and his character, I cite God's promises, and I communicate total trust. How you get through a tunnel of chaos when your mind is confused and there's all kinds of emotions, anger, frustration, just a lack of clarity, is that you have to lament. And so what I want to teach you today is how to do that. And the first thing you do is simply this, you tell God what you think is unfair or painful. This is the start of a lament. This is how you argue with God. And when you first do it, it almost sounds demanding. God, you just got to do something about this, okay? Let me read to you a couple of them. I just want to read to you two. I want to read Psalms 88. This doesn't come from David. It comes from a guy named Heman. 
who was an Ezraite. He was one of the last sons of Korah, okay? And he was in David's court, and he was kind of considered the best psalmist, the best musician that brought out worship. And yet, what you may not know about Heman is that he fought chronic depression. Some of us struggle with chronic depression here. Think about this. He was the worship leader of David, King David. And God put his psalm in the book. Why? Because even his complaints and his perspectives on life was as worship to God. And he said this, my life is full of troubles and I'm really dead. And I'm really dead. You know, people who feel this way, who struggle with this, that disease. I'm like a man with no strength. You've taken my friends away from me and made me uh, hate him. My eyes are, are weak from crying. Lord, I've prayed to you every day. I've called to you for help. Lord, why, don't, why do you reject me? Why do you hide from me? I've been weak and dying since I was young. In other words, I've been struggling with this all my life, God. You've taken away my loved ones and friends. Darkness is my only friend. He's complaining. Here's another one. I like this. This is Jehoshaphat. An enemy was going to come in and destroy uh, uh, the, his city, uh, the city of Jerusalem here. And, and he's complaining to God about this, this enemy. He says this, oh, Lord, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hands, and no one can withstand you. Oh, our God, did you not give us this land forever to us, the, the, the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Now, three nations are trying to drive us out. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? We don't have any power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. What you see Jehoshaphat doing here is he's appealing to God's nature. He's, he's claiming the promises of God. God, are you not? God, did you not? God, will you not? You see, the first thing that you and I do is we got to tell God what we think is unfair and painful. Take a look at Psalms 142, verse 1 through 3. I call to the Lord for help. I plead with him. I bring my complaints to him. I tell him my troubles. When I'm ready to give up, he knows what I should do. And in that lament, lament, the tone could be one of anger, it can be one of frustration, it can be one of fear, it can be one of loneliness, it can be one of disappointment. And I bring that up to just ask you this, what are you tired of tolerating in your life right now? Make it a lament. And the key to a successful lament is twofold. The first one is that you complain to God and not about God or against God. When Moses complained to God, God answered his prayers. When, when the Hebrews complained against God or about God, they got stuck. And we talked about that last week. The second key is that when you complain to God, you do so in faith. You believe that God has, is hearing your, your prayer of complaint. Here's an example. Uh, uh, Psalms 55, verse 17. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. David was complaining to God, and he knew God heard it. And he did it morning, noon, and night. The second component of a, a prayer of lament, if you want to be blessed like Jacob, is you've got to call on God's nature or his character. When you read the Psalms, 
Psalms of Lament, you hear the complainers saying, God, you're a God that's good. You're a good God. You're a good father. You're a loving God. You're a kind God. You're, you're a patient God. What they're doing is they're appealing to God's nature. And folks, you and I need to do the same thing. If you remember the story of Abraham, when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham appealed to God's nature, his character. He says, God, I don't think it'd be fair. Do you? I mean, that you would destroy a city if there were 50 righteous people? And God says, you know, you got a good point. Well, how about 40? Another good point. How about 30, 20? You know, it just went on. He's appealing to God's nature. Moses and David and Jehoshaphat did the same thing. As they were looking at their world, they're saying, you know what? Nothing's working right, God. My life isn't working right. My family's not working right. My job's not working right. This world that we live in is going to hell in a handbasket. God, it's not working right. You helped out people in the past. Will you not help me out? I call on the nature of God. The third thing that you do, if you're going to win the struggle, is that you've got to cite God's promises. You've got to tell him what he has said in the past, the promises that he has made. For myself, as my grandkids came into the world, and I was getting to know them, and they were getting to know me, they were a little leery. I mean, obviously, they know mom and dad, but, you know, who is this grandma and grandpa that come in and hug on, you know, mom and dad and then hug on me? And as they got to be about two or three, you know, kid, you know, how young kids, adults are, you know, they watch the Disney movies, and so they got into Disney. And so I'm coming in, grandkids around two or three, and they're used to Disney, and I say, hey, come to Grandpa. Grandpa loves you, you know, and they just look at me. And then I came up with wisdom. It's called a bribe. Do you want to go to Disney World? And they come to me, and I love on them. Well, now as they've gotten older, I mean, I have this one – Isley, she's like Darth Vader, okay? I come in, Isley, come to Grandpa and give me a hug. She stands there and looks. The force is on my side. You come to me. And then I bring out the old bribe, okay? Do you want to go to Disney World? <gasps> Runs over and gives me a big hug. Well, it was just the other week. They were watching Disney World, and they started chanting as they were playing together. When is Grandpa going to take us to Disney World? And so D Matthew records this thing. Grandpa, we're watching a Disney program, and when are you going to take us to Disney World? You promised. You know what that did for my heart? It just jumped out of my chest. And then I told him, well, it's Grandma's fault. It's her decision, you know. No, just kidding. <laughs> but, folks, you and I can do that with God, right? God, you said, Jacob did this. Remember, he's at this river. He thinks he's going to lose his life. And I'd be scared too. I'd be scared of a family reunion. I'm going to tell you that right now, okay? But this is what he says in Genesis 32, verse 9. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my grandfather Abraham and my father Isaac. He's bringing up the past. God, remember the past, okay? Remember what you did for my relatives, you told me to return to my land and to my relatives, and you promised to treat me kindly. I'm not worthy of all the faithfulness and unfailing love, but, oh, Lord, please rescue me from my brother Esau. I'm afraid that he is coming to kill me. 
but you promised to treat me kindly and to multiply my descendants. Will you circle, you told me, and you promised me twice. He's saying, God, you promised me that you're going to give me a lot of descendants. You're going to make me the father of this great nation. And God, it's not going to happen, I'm going to tell you this, if I get killed right now. And so I complain to God. I, I, I call on God's nature, and then I cite God's promises. And then the fourth thing that I do in this prayer of lament to get you through the tunnel of chaos, and particularly the the confused mind, is that I communicate total trust to God. You see, when you go through the Psalms, you will discover that David almost ends all of his Psalms this way. I'm still trusting in you, God. Even though life sucks right now and it really is miserable and I don't like it, I'm still going to trust you. And that's what you end your your prayer on. Lord, I trust you. I trust your goodness. I trust your wisdom. I trust your love. Here's an example. Job, out of Job's life, 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. In essence, Job is saying, you know what, God, I can't figure this thing out. I can't get my mind around it. It's bigger than I am. But even if I die in the process, you know what, I'm going to trust you because I know I'm going to go to heaven. And I, you're God and I'm not. And then Habakkuk. David next week is going to share out of Habakkuk, primarily in Habakkuk 3. So I want to set this up because Habakkuk does the same thing. He says, even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vine, and even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, and even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, and he's talking about economics here. I'm in an economic tunnel of chaos. Yet I will still rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to continue to worship, and I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. In other words, I'm going to trust in you because you're sovereign, God. You know the end from the beginning. Now, I want you to listen to me very carefully. The way you win a fight with God, who's got longer arms than you, is this, is that you surrender. Because there's no way you can outbox God who's got longer arms. The way you win is by surrendering. And what you surrender are the unanswerable questions of life. And there are a lot of them, aren't there? Why did this happen now? Why me? Why this way? Why, God? And when you and I surrender to God and the unanswerable questions in particular, what we get are the blessings of God. We get a sense of the presence of God, the love of God, the care, the comfort, the power of God that we have in here. The only way that you and I win a struggle is when you and I give up control. The most dangerous disease is the delusion that you and I are in control. We are not. We are not in control of our marriages, our kids, the weather, the economy, the disease that we get. We're not in control of life itself. The greatest things in life truly are out of our control. And so what do you and I do when we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of this tunnel as we have suffered some kind of loss in our life? We give the control to the one who has the power to do it. And we declare our dependence on him. This is what Jacob did. 
trust him. Let's read the end of it, 31. So the sun rose, that is from the wrestling match, as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Jacob had been running all of his life, manipulating, deceiving, supplanting, being the control freak, getting everything his way. But now he couldn't run anymore. As we close, can I ask you this? As we move through the tunnel, what have you been running from your entire life? Only after you wrestle with God will you get his blessing. And from that blessing, he will give you a reminder to trust him. And that reminder will be a limp. But understand this. All God's giants have limps. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he chose to come and walk with broken people who have broken areas in their life but are willing to trust them with it as they walk through the tunnels The gospel is for you. God wants to give you good news that he is with you and will help you through it.